I'm Jahan Sharif, and welcome to this week's Jaja In. I believe that taking the time to better understand how a person lives life is one of the best ways to deepen our connection to our own. This week, I'm joined by Vasilios Papapichios. He's a multidisciplinary artist based in Los Angeles who uses his experience living with HIV to inform his art and bring awareness around HIV to a conversational level. We spoke this week about his life before and after he seroconverted and how his experience impacts how he's using his voice to chip away at stigma and remind us all that we're cute and fuckable. Please enjoy my conversation with Voss. Where were you born, darling? I was born in North Carolina. What's it like to grow up in North Carolina as a Greek descent person, a person of Greek descent? Well, I was never really accepted in the Greek community. I'm like half Greek, and we didn't learn the language. What's your other half? Um, my mom is like Irish, English. Um, my, my yaya, my dad's mom, was adopted, so we don't really quite know what's up with her. Mm. Is that Genetic. how your family ended up in North Carolina? Um, my, both my parents grew up in South Carolina in small towns and then migrated out of those small ass towns and went to Charlotte, North oh. Carolina, where I grew up, suburbia. Um, but yeah, my dad's mom was adopted. We don't really quite know, but my sister did, however, do a DNA test, which showed up that we have some like, you know, Middle Eastern as well as Greek mm. and Moroccan, Portuguese, Spanish, yeah. that area, Iberian Peninsula. Um, Irish, English, Greek. I always felt like a sort of melting pot, sort of ambiguous to a lot of people. I could pass as like a couple different races, I feel like. I don't know. It it depends like, and so growing up was was interesting because when I was bullied as a kid, because yeah, I'm not just like a faggot. It's like, you look different than like the straight, you know, white bread slices of everyday life mm-hmm. that pass through the hallways of elementary school and high school and middle school. Um, you know, they would they would call me a dirty Mexican, and I was like, but I'm not even that. Okay, just <laughs> nor do like you I'm frankly like, look right. Mexican. We're talking about conservative people in suburbia of North Carolina. This is true. Um, and then in high, middle school, when 9/11 happened. I was a, a Taliban. That was the, the bullying term, yeah. you know, um, which is a little closer, I guess, but not. Um, we're more on the like Caucasus mountain region was what we showed up like 10% of, which is basically Iran, Armenia, Georgia, Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I always felt on the fringe of a lot of different things. Um, just starting out, and I think you could share that experience being you know, LGBTQ, like, but also Jamaican, half Jamaican, half Pakistani, right. growing up in South Florida where everybody is Colombian, Cuban, Venezuelan. Right. I mean, right, yeah. right. So we can like understand that aspect. Could and they even process your name? No, Vasilios is actually my Greek name, my baptized name. It's the name of my grandfather when he immigrated, but it's not the name on my passport. Oh, what's the name on your passport? Um, wouldn't you like to know? I would. I'm uh, so curious. <laughs> that was sort of a decision I made when I left North Carolina to sort of reinvent myself because I knew I was going to be making art about HIV. When did you leave North Carolina, though? I left North Carolina in 2015 for New York after I had spent four and a half years living with AIDS and not getting treatment. 
and in this okay so let me stop you and go back for a second <laughs> yeah i feel like we jumped over some stuff here. well we're, <laughs> we're talking about leaving north carolina yeah um, but okay so but so tell me a little bit more about like growing up and like how does somebody who is biracial um living in north carolina with people who don't understand that nuance that well i suppose and then are bullying you for it mm -hmm. um how does that sort of inform your worldview and how you're thinking sure. about what you want to do? I mean, I was closeted. And you're, yeah, sort of forgot, and you're gay. I was closeted until basically senior year, but that wasn't out. I mean, actually at the time, I was very like nature boy. I, would, I wore Crocs year round. And if it was winter, they had, I had wool socks on. And I done. ran a club called Free the Planet. Um, because I'm always at heart, my heart, I'm like interested in wellness, I'm interested in nature and conservation um, because I believe that, you know, without a healthy planet, we can't be healthy. Um, there, my senior exit project was on eco-psychology, which is this, the idea basically that if we are not healthy, then nature is unhealthy. If nature is unhealthy, then we are also unhealthy. Kind of like we are one. Yes. There's a symbiotic relationship here. And you had a work. sense of this even at that young age where you were like, yes, advocate I mean, for it in this I've club. been, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've been camping my whole life and nature has always been something that I connected with, like yeah. playing in the, you know, clay of North Carolina, like building stuff out of sticks and mud and like jumping across creeks. I was always lucky enough to have in the two houses we lived in in Charlotte to have lots of woods nearby yeah um within walking distance big yeah. creeks i mean i was just like a fairy child <laughs> like living in these these woods and like dirty as fuck and like scraped up but like living my best life living your best life so when you went to college um what did you want to study i started in environmental studies okay yeah um, unc right chapel i was at unc chapel yeah. hill i was undecided for about a i think i was undecided for a year or half a year then i went into environmental studies it just seemed right. Um, but then it became incredibly depressing because like everything is dying. And um, I realized that there was a more intersectional, more multidisciplinary route that I could take. I didn't know was an option. And I could put that understanding of world environment and, and people, um, even like, you know, the animal kingdom and nature can fit into this anthropology degree that I ended up getting and I also majored in media production where mm -hmm. I did like gender studies and um, I kind of linked all of that stuff up and yeah. wanted to tell stories uh, that was sort of and still is my main goal is finding out how you know I think the best way to change minds is through people's hearts um, but how do we make stories that are visually pleasing um, as well as um, you know, digestible, because uh, certainly the material that I started talking about is sort of radical in a lot of ways, especially in a place like North Carolina. What were you saying? I mean, I was I was confronting the I made a short documentary about the racist statues on campus and the names of the buildings that were literally named after KKK members. Um, I mean, you were ahead of your time. That time was also when they defunded the AIDS drug assistance program, which was the main reason I didn't get what immediate is, help. Yeah, what is the AIDS drug assistance program? A ADAP, AIDS drug assistance programs are throughout the states. 
it is for people living below the poverty line and marginalized in certain ways, uh, whether through disability or something, like to get access to medicine. Um, antiretroviral therapy is the only medicine that people living with HIV um, have. Yeah. Um, and it's not cheap. Know. It's like $2,000 a month for sometimes. Sometimes yeah. more. Sometimes more. Um, yeah, like if I didn't have insurance, I would be almost spilling a 30 grand a year just to keep my viral load undetectable mm -hmm. and to keep my CD4 count um, high and healthy. Yeah. So um, tell me if this is, uh, if I shouldn't ask this question, but how did you find out that you had seroconverted? How did you, was it a surprise? Did you do a normal checkup? I did not. And I guess it's also important to talk about the word seroconversion sure. as opposed to infection or something I mean, like that. Just for viewers sake, uh, or audience listening today, um, most of the time it's not great to ask someone who's paused how they got HIV. No, not how they got it, how you found out. Um, right, Yeah. right. I found out um, I was at the urgent care getting treated for chlamydia. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, we went in, me and my partner went in for testing. We were showing signs of having an STI and the doctor woman was like, well, I'm just gonna test you for everything. And you know, if something comes back, we give you a call and then you come in. Um, so, we got the calls that we needed to come in for treatment. Well, we actually got treated on the spot because we had visible signs of having an STI. Yeah. So they, at that time, they sort of treat you for, you know, a gonorrhea or a chlamydia. Um, and then you wait for your HIV test or your syphilis to come back. Um, and then they called me and um, they're like, you need to come in. We found, you know, there's something we need to talk about. And I was 19. It was October. I don't remember the day. Um, I sort of compartmentalized and <laughs> I feel like blacked out a lot of that, that time of my life. Um, but um, I found out that way in a very cold room with nothing on the walls and a very cold doctor just sort of telling me that I had HIV, tested positive, and I needed to talk to the state. There was certain forms I needed to fill out that they could trace my whereabouts and track me and have knowledge of my counts and if I got any other infections as someone who is more at high risk for inf infections, um, tuberculosis, for example, like, which is something that spreads very fast. Um, we're like the canaries in a coal mine because we don't have great immune systems you know, so that scared me. So first of all, I was like, well, shit, like now I've already been a conspiracy <laughs> person for years, like, mm -hmm. and now I have this thing, like I've always been wary of Western medicine, you know, having been this sort of nature kid. Um, my parents taught me growing up, like not to really trust pharmaceuticals, but to take them if you need, you know, it was for survival, but like, I mean, they would have wanted me to get treatment immediately. Yeah. But so did you, what was your, what was your education level? How would you describe your education around HIV before um, you converted? So 19 years old, I had done one HIV test before on the campus. It was, a, I think, one of the rapid tests, which is spit. Mm -hmm. um, 
they I mean, I remember I've seen pamphlets at, at the LGBT center on campus. So I you had, didn't really know that I had much. I never considered you, but in it, high school. Did they? No thing. Nothing, nothing in, in high, high school. school. Oh my god, no! Like I never considered that it was an option for me. Let alone that it was still like a thing. A thing. You know, like how ignorant I was. I don't know. It was just really scary at the time. I didn't know how to deal with it. I went to the campus, went to the dean of students, and asked for assistance withdrawing from two classes that I felt I was falling behind in because of the emotional stress I was under. And yeah, me and my friends just sort of like drank ourselves to oblivion for a week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were, yeah. I told my closest friends immediately and they just, they also did not know how to react except for let's go buy a case of beer, you know. <laughs> yeah and like cry and hold each other and then like yeah it was just no one was prepared and I didn't immediately seek the right sort of resources because I was scared I mean the first time I got my my counts done was in a parking lot in in a car with a caseworker who was also like a nurse practitioner who could take my blood because I was scared to go into a clinic yeah. Um, Why were you scared? I just, it was, it made it real. It was like acknowledging it and accepting it was, means that I had to deal with it. Um, and in dealing with it, that meant a lot of stress and anxiety um, and a lot of unknowns. I'd just come out, you know, the, like the year before. And so I was just embarking on this whole, like, what, is it, what does it mean to be gay or queer? Um, and I felt like I had time to figure it out. Um, I needed to sort of assimilate this new, what it meant, what it really means to be HIV positive. Um, but I don't think, you know, I was really prepared for what was coming next. Um, what was that? The next was, so, the beginning of spring semester, 2011, so my sophomore year, um, I had hooked up with somebody who we were, you know, very inebriated, <laughs> and we woke up the next morning and we, like, see a condom, we're like, oh my god, did we, like, we tried to fuck, didn't we, huh? Um, I don't think it was successful. Um, this person ends up having a conversation with the dean that I went to um, for assistance to withdraw from class the semester before. And he just mentions that he needs to get tested for HIV because he had a, quote, a scare, right? Um, he knew that you were HIV positive. I told him uh -huh. when we woke up the next day, I said, well, I, you know, at the time, I was drinking a lot, right? It was sort of a coping mechanism. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the dean takes this I, information. I just said, like, you know, I have HIV. I was supposed to tell you before we hooked up, but I don't remember hooking up if we even did. Like, I just see a condom on the floor. But just so you know, like, yeah. here's the facts, and you should probably go get, you should get tested. Um, so he ends up just having a meeting about financial aid, as it turns out. 
um, this person was like more or less a friend of mine, obviously. Mm -hmm. We shared a night together. <laughs> um, and the dean hears that he's had this scare. And at the time, Chapel Hill and other parts of North Carolina were having like these mini epidemics of HIV. And for whatever reason, this dean had reason to believe that I had malicious intent. Um, the laws in North Carolina still, and at the time, declare that if you do not disclose your status, um, whether or not the person you shared intercourse with seroconverts, right, which means getting testing positive for HIV, um, whether or not they seroconvert, you can be put in jail um, because it's considered uh, harm to another person and like almost a form of, of manslaughter. Um, and these laws are from the 80s wow. when it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, we lost a million people. Like, yeah. um, but they, these laws are very outdated, especially in the time of, even in 2011 when this was, like PrEP had just come out a few years before. We knew that more or less undetectable meant that it's very, very unlikely for you to pass virus. Um, yeah. Undetectable is untransmittable. Undetectable, U equals U, undetectable U equals, U. equals untransmittable, which is something we knew as a community and like doctors would tell you from even the beginning for me, but not until last year the CDC came out and said officially, yeah. you're undetectable, you can't transmit the virus, and which was major for the movement yeah. um, and for us just leaving, leading, you know, having more opportunity to lead more full, rich um, lives mm -hmm. without the stigma because that means that people are going to be less afraid. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the dean, uh, he yeah. finds out that you, <laughs> he finds out that uh, you may be somehow related to this scare that this other person is going to the financial right. aid office to not have the conversation about this. Right. And somehow he gets wind of it. He... And what does he do? He, Why is this... He is... So he's like alarmed, I guess, that... This person is. But is this, this is this why he expels you? This scare. Yes. I mean, he sent he slid in my name across the table to the person and said, "Is this who you were with?" And he nodded yes. Um, that day, I got an email saying, "You're no longer allowed on campus. Um, you'll be put before the emergency evaluation committee, which is something they literally make a tribunal of elders that I honestly think they like make up for like these kinds of special like private cases. It was very traumatic and harmful. Uh, I immediately like wrote them a letter and was like, I am a good person. Like I have no ill intent, like explained my side of the story. Um, uh, and you know, I, I fought really hard to to get back into school, but I was still expelled for a semester, and it was that more than anything that led me into more depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and lo like you know, they were the only people I went to for support, mm -hmm. my only access to support because I can't tell my mom and dad that was not an option. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so when my only support system fell out from underneath me, I spiraled and, you know, 
being told that you're a threat to campus and you cannot come on board, like come on campus for any reason is really harmful. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you imagine like being a little kid, like 19 and being told that uh, for something that you don't have a lot of control over also, mm -hmm. and which something is also now just three months new to you. Yeah, that's true. Cause it was, Right. You don't even know what's going on, really. Right. So, how did you get back into school? I had to go through, basically, I call it forced psychological testing. They put me through, like, a series of, of meetings and tests with um, two different psych psychologists. One of them was, like, the head of the department. Like, scariest. Like, I would say, like, very Professor Umbridge mm -hmm. from Harry Potter, mm -hmm. if anyone mm -hmm. knows that. <laughs> like, scary woman. Um, I shan't say her name. But, um, you know, just sort of looking at you with a smile that's like the fakest thing you've ever seen, but like contempt, like piercing through her eyes, knowing that I'm there just to prove myself worthy uh, to come back to, to campus and to prove that I am not a threat to people. I mean, I've, I've always felt like I'm a healer, right? It's like the farthest thing from like somebody who wants anyone to be harmed. Yeah. So that was, that was challenging. I mean, like, that's not an easy thing to go through. And you're still maybe 20 now? 19? No, I'm just, I'm still 19. This is a little bit, yeah. So you're still, it's not like you're really equipped to do all right. this. Right. Yeah. I'm just thrown, and was there, there was anybody else around you to help you through it? It's just you no, by yourself? No, my friends were, of... you know, more or less, unequipped to handle but I mean even and in the, I just stopped talking to them about it because yeah. their solution was like drugs and alcohol that's not helpful. and and also like ignoring the, the fact um, because they didn't know how to process it yeah but I mean say even in the academic like pro there was no advocate for you there it was just you by yourself yes that is terrifying yes and it's like upsetting even now for me to think this is 10 years later but like yeah yeah, I mean, that like, was... Like, I can't imagine me, little 19-year-old... That was only seven years ago. Seven years ago, yes. It just in front of the institution trying to advocate for myself. Like, right. Yeah. Um, it was the only resource I had, and it was taken away from me. And I did reach out to the ACLU, and I did reach out to Duke University's legal aid. So mm -hmm. I talked to both of them, and I mean, I still have the voicemail saved. Yeah. You know, hey, it's so and so from the ACLU. Like, we want to talk to you about your like what you've described. Like, you you have a big case here. They more or less wanted me to spearhead a campaign against the university because what they had done to me was incredibly illegal. Yeah. Um, and the way they handled it was just really wrong. So like, you know, at first I was okay. Like. Let's do it. Like, I'm like the fierce fighter, right? And yeah, you are. Um, I, I realized that that was going to be harder on me than just figuring out how to heal my body first mm -hmm. and have the time to do that. So let's talk about that piece. How, how, how do you even think about healing at this point? What does healing mean? I, <laughs> I knew that I didn't have... AIDS when I first tested I had a I had a CD4 count which is the count they take to measure immune systems 
Um, so higher the better. The T cells you have, yeah, the higher the better. A normal person typically has 500 to 2500 or 2000, something like that. Yeah. So my first test came back and I had like 300. Okay. If you're below 200, that's when they really just can start blanketing, blanketing you into what is AIDS, right? Acquired immune deficiency syndrome, which is technically an umbrella term for you having HIV, but having a count below 200 and one of, I think, 31 different infections. Mm -hmm. You have to have both of those things in order to be considered someone living with AIDS. Yeah. What once, was your... once you have AIDS, you technically have it for life. Healing to me at the time meant nutrition. It meant, um, I, I honestly did look into a lot of sort of alternative therapies. Yeah. But you, were you taking like antiretrovirals at this I was point? not taking no. any antiretrovirals. I actually was getting calls. I would, I basically like blocked every call I didn't know because I was getting calls from the state of North Carolina health department all the time yeah. because I wasn't following their directions. Yeah. So when did you, how long were you not on, on antiretrovirals? So for five years, uh -huh. for five years, I lived with HIV in my body and it wasn't until year four that I started getting sick. Um, this was also the time that I was, I dropped out of school again because my best friend passed and I decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. Yes. All, you know, almost 2,000 miles. Yeah. Um, a story in and of itself. <laughs> I needed to take a long walk, right? <laughs> and nature is the best way for me to yeah. heal. Yeah. Um, and I got Lyme disease on the, on the Appalachian Trail. Mm -hmm. And then I was quite sick and then, you know, had to get off the trail and was on these sort of like nuclear antibiotics for a while and then I actually went back on the trail quite yeah. still in recovery from limes but determined to finish walking yeah. and it was very biblical and this weird like <laughs> you know they keep throwing things at me I've always been a sick kid I don't know my willpower just was really strong at the time because I was doing this for Charlie who had passed and I was determined to finish and then I got back on the trail and actually got shingles on my face and I told people that it was poison ivy mm -hmm. but I knew what it was and that was when I started getting sick. Mm -hmm. um, went back to school in August. Um, things started rapidly crumbling um, over the course of the next year. Yeah. And I started losing weight and wasn't able to eat, just not able to sleep. So by the time... Did you know, like... This, I knew... Well, you knew, I that, knew, you knew that this was, not, this was something different. I'm like... You knew what you was know, going on. I knew that I was sick, that I had HIV, and that I wasn't doing anything to take care of myself. Yeah. I was And was scared. this bringing it into reality where... It was bringing it into reality. Yeah. I, like, couldn't, you know, ignore it anymore. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say I was in denial ever. I was very much not in denial. I was ordering weird things off the internet that are yeah. quasi-conspiratorial, like <laughs> medicine, that yeah. reading books, like the cure for cancer and HIV, yeah. like things that... You just you know, weren't on the... Yeah. The other, the, the prescribed path, shall we say. Right, yeah. right. Um, and then by the time December of 2014, it wasn't very long ago, yeah. um, I was 104 pounds 
I looked like I was going to die. Um, I know right now I'm around 150 pounds, so you can imagine what me with 50 less pounds looks like, and that's... Bones. Bones, yeah. I mean, I looked like I'd been in a concentration camp. I looked like the people looked in the 80s, wow. um, dying of AIDS. In 2014. Yeah. In 2014, um, yes, and people still die from AIDS complications all the time all in this the country, time. and especially around the world. Um, because of the lack of education, resources mm -hmm. to care, and so did the you check stigma yourself? around that. Did you check yourself into the hospital? or I called my mom. and just, She didn't know at this point? She had no idea. She had no idea. I called her up and said, can you come to Chapel Hill? Like, I hadn't had a great relationship with my family for the last two to three years because the more I fell into the secrecy, the more I was you know, facing a lot of self-stigma, um, a lot of trauma and sort of hiding in a way and that included distancing myself from the people who loved me the most yeah. because I mean I was living in fear um, so I called her up she came up and she just sees me and she's like I'm like I immediately I'm like hey like I have HIV I'm not doing well we like cried it out and then like you know she's immediately like, we need to take action. So she didn't, she wasn't, she cried it out, but she wasn't, she reacted healthily, it sounds like. She, she I mean, like she, most people <laughs> didn't was, know what to do, but knew that there was not a lot of time and that she would do whatever it needed to happen to yeah. take care of her baby. Yeah. So okay. um, immediately my dad drives up yeah. and my sisters drive up from Charleston. And so I have like my whole family around me and I start, two days later I end up in Duke Hospital and I'm seeing a specialist who is, you know, only like, he's in his young 30s and he's like an HIV specialist, Dr. OKK. Mm he's -hmm. um, of African descent. He was, was brilliant, but I remember him looking at me and saying, you know, you probably have three weeks to a month left to live if you go untreated. And he said that in front of my mom and that made her freak the fuck out, Yeah, obviously. And I just remember her leaving because he needed to like look at my body or something, do some kind of physical. So she left the room and I scolded him thoroughly. It's like, do not ever talk like that in front of my mother again. <laughs> you can say that to me, yeah. and I know that like I have faith that you're going to take care of me now, but like that was unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you go you into know, treatment. Uh, within a week of starting treatment, I had a rare medical case happen, or a diagnosis where for some people who have extreme cases of acute HIV or AIDS, like I did, once you start treatment, your body starts getting an immune system again for the oh. first time. So any dormant infections that are in your body come up because mm. my body was so sick that it couldn't fight. I had about five infections in my body at the time and some of my organs. So I had immediately got really sick. I was hospitalized. Uh, they were afraid I had meningitis. And I was in like a concealed space for a couple of days, like literally like in this like sealed off yeah. Hermetic sealed chamber. So, so how long were you in this hole, like, <laughs> just stable as that? Like, what what point? Like the 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 urgency the first month. The first month. So basically December. So once you once the beginning the... of December to the beginning of January was like 
we got over a hump. Yeah. And I so was... then at, once you're, that's the, yeah. So when yeah. you're at the hump and you're like, all right, I'm going to be all right. It might take a little bit more time, but I'm going to be all right. Um, what do you decide for yourself? Like, what do you think about what you want for your life at that right. point? Right. Well, I had a lot of time to think and meditate. I couldn't really move. I had no energy. Mm -hmm. um, I dove into myself and, you know, at times felt like I was, you know, outside of my body in a way because I realized that I sort of had been doing a slow suicide for a while. Um, whether or not that was my intention, that's what it looked like. My parents didn't really believe that I was able to take care of myself at this point. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't really know how much I did want to live. Um, and that hurt, you know, in some ways, because they, you know, they didn't believe that I was, would take my medicine if they weren't watching. I'm like, y'all, I'm like literally 23 years old. Like, I'm doing this now. It took me four and a half years to be able to get to this point, mm -hmm. and you just found out. So, like, I understand that it's going to take some time for you, but I've made my decision to live when we went to the hospital and started treatment. Um, so that was annoying in a way. Uh, they, <laughs> it felt like I was being undermined when yeah. I, you know, was finally fighting this, this thing. Um, so after, like, a month, I started being able to eat norm mostly normally. I had put on like maybe 10 pounds by now, 15. So after the first month, the first three months I had to go pretty much every week or every other week because of my case. And then it was, you go every three months and then it's like you go every six months. I was on antibiotics for a year. Wow. Just to make sure that I didn't develop any more infections. And those, those were, that was actually the, some of the hardest part mm -hmm. was taking those. Um, I became undetectable in more or less four months. Wow, that's fast. Yeah. I mean, that's how it goes, actually. It takes like three to four months, um, which surprises people. And I had, you know, one of the worst possible cases, right? And then within four months, I was undetectable and 145 pounds and felt better than I had in three years. I forgot what it felt like to be healthy and did you feel like reborn I, I well so it was I consider myself you know having had a near-death experience um, and I had a spiritual rebirth and a physical uh, rebirth but when they took my spinal they did a spinal tap mm -hmm. because that's how you test for meningitis and I remember seeing the, the clear fluid and this massive syringe this is when I was a weekend into to treatment and was really sick, right? And I was in this like secret sealed off chamber at the hospital and they're doing all these tests, which very much was an out, out of body experience. But I see this clear fluid, this spinal fluid, and I'm like, that is my essence. I felt like when they took that out of me, I was like, I don't know why, but I always considered that like the time where I felt like I was going to survive and that I was going to be reborn because it was crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And I had my like, you know, my like fighting <laughs> gloves on at this point. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, yeah, so you were reborn. You made it through. <laughs> you made it through. I made it through. You ended up having a full recovery. I did. And uh, I know that, you know, you said when you were in high school and you were gonna like think about how to bring art and stories and nature and mm -hmm. conservation, all of it together. When you came through this experience and you're like ready to go back out into living your life, 
what did you want to do? So, <laughs> my parents did not like this idea, but I left in March. Literally, as soon as I got the news that I was undetectable, and I was like, um, I'm going to take a three-week trip <laughs> to California. And I went up and down the coast and met up with some friends who were here and there, um, Santa Barbara, Oakland, SF. I just spent my time on the coast and in nature in this place that I considered like California, right? It's like the land of plenty. It's it like is. where we, we pioneer towards to like <laughs> the get the gold. Like I felt like this was always sort of the dream. And it was either going to be New York or L.A. or the Bay. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what that was like. I'd been to New York before, um, but I'd never really visited L.A. or SF and wanted to see what that was like because I planned to make my move soon. I was in my final semester of college when I got really sick and, you know, was hospitalized. So I had to finish school that January and February. From the hospital? From home. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's how I finished college. I mean, I never walked. Amazing. It was just like, I've been done with y'all for so long after what <laughs> you put me through. Like, and grabbing this, you know, getting this, these, this double major, this, these degrees, like was something I definitely needed to finish. I still have like, anxiety dreams about yeah. not graduating college. And maybe that's common for a lot of people, but in my case, it was really something like, I fought tooth and nail for six, five and a half years mm -hmm. after leaving twice and being expelled once yeah. to just get this education that was so important to me. So what are you up to now? Because um, we're now four <laughs> years out of that? We are four years out of that. You live in LA now. We are, and that surprises people. Like when I was recovering, I, I planted a lot of seeds. I knew that, I mean, really that first month, that was really scary. Um, I knew that, I mean, I'm very spiritual. I, I felt, you know, like I was closer to the veil of death and therefore had access to talking to my, my spirit guides and the angels that were helping me. I realized that my life path was really to bring the awareness around HIV to a place that is conversational, but doing that through a creative way, my art practice, um, that's how I knew how to do it at the time. And a lot of my ideas were sort of radical. I'm, I'm talking about like transmutation, alchemy, how do we transmute fear into love? That's the basis of everything I do in life now, mm -hmm. is working towards changing fear-based consciousness into something much lighter. Um, how, and how do you... How do you <laughs> it's a work in progress. It's a work... But I mean, uh, what have you, well, I should say, what have you learned in that process? Like, how, how do you... How have, for yourself, transmuted the fear that you had at 19 through 23 into love for yourself right. today? Like, how have you done it for yourself? That is the question, right? That, <laughs> I mean, that's something I've been working on for nine years, but a little harder the last four and a half since getting healthy because it was therapy for me to make art. That was the way I expressed my feelings and worked through a lot of the trauma I had. And it is still to this day a way for me to express 
the nuance of, of a healing path with something like HIV. It's not, you know, it's not one way. My, the, another issue that I had with my parents, you know, was, at the time was they thought that once I got undetectable, then I was done with HIV mm -hmm. and I would just start leading a normal life and get back into the, you know, yep. job market of whatever they desired for me. Yeah. Um, and that was just completely wrong. Not There's it. a, we have multiple bodies, right? We have an emotional body, we have a mental body, we have a, an etheric body, right? We have a physical body and my physical body was just beginning to be healed. But my mental state and my emotional state and certainly my spiritual state was just beginning to walk a different path. Mm. Um, to bring those all into alignment. To bring those into alignment. I continued to seek out alternative healing, preventative medicine. Nature has always been very important to sort of meditation. There is not one right way to heal because we have such multidimensional selves. And I think it's different for every person, but I go to acupuncture mm -hmm. regularly. You know, I have two inflammatory diseases, Lyme's chronic Lyme disease and HIV. So my body is often, you know, ghosting on me in a way. And <laughs> like, it, some days I wake up and I don't feel great and I might need to show up for work and I, I'm very fatigued or my joints are extra cranky for whatever reason. Um, I have to take care of myself. Uh, it sounds like you're very, um in control of things. I feel like I'm at about to be 28, right, in June, and I feel like I'm stepping into the end of the cycle, the beginning of a new one, but that I'm really kind of done with the the on the like the last vestiges of my my own fear. You know, and I'm outspoken about all this stuff about pleasure and joy and intimacy, but at the end of the day, it's because I'm still figuring that stuff out but want to support that for other people mm -hmm. and, and work with others towards that means. But um, I feel like I'm finally in control. Yeah. And that feels really good. I mean, I'm, I'm doing good things for my body. I'm in therapy. I've got acupuncture. Um, I eat as healthy as I can. But that is also a privilege. Um, like, like I said, like we live in a bubble. California has some of the best healthcare. That's why I moved here. Mm -hmm. um, and I have access to organizations in LA that I think <laughs> it's easy to say that like 90% of the country does, living with HIV does not have access to. So I understand that I am privileged why living did you, in a place like this. Just as we wrap up, like why was it important for you to share your story today? It's very important to share this because I want other people living with HIV to know that, you know, I'm here. There's a soft place to fall. Like we have a lot of, you know, harm and trauma. And as we work together towards finding our bodies desirable and loving them without any validation from someone else, that we can do that. And I want people who are ignorant to, you know, the lives of people living with HIV and even the, the facts around it. I want them to do the research and do the homework because there's a lot of knowledge out there. It's quite easy to access. And those are the perpetrators of the fear-based consciousness. And we living with it, we do also 
continue living in that way and make that sort of cultural, societal situation more prevalent with our own self-internalized stigma. Um, and I just want people to feel fuckable <laughs> and feel cute and... Um, and to be desired. Be desired and know that there is love out there for you, even in such a hopeless place. All right, Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm looking, so if anyone's out there, you can find me at basil.ios on Instagram. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm excited. Like, I spent you know, the last year kind of on hiatus from a lot of my artistic practice. And I am about to jump full force back into it. So expect some content, honey. It's going to be... It's going to be great. That is so. something I'm looking forward to. <laughs> we'll check it out next time. Yes. But uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for tonight. Thank you. Can I have a hug? Yes. Oh my God. I'm Jahan Sharif, and you've been listening to Jaja In. Keep up with Voss on Instagram at basil.ios and his art Instagram, H-I-V-I-R-L. That's H-I-V in real life. You can follow me on Instagram at Jahan Sharif and catch up with past installments on my website, jahansharif.com. Pretty simple. And while you're at it, sign up for my weekly newsletter delivered right to your inbox every Saturday morning. Next week, I'll be joined by Sam Rapinski, the founder of Everybody. It's the most radically inclusive gym in America. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.